welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast today. This is episode number 338, and we have a great listener story for you today. So as you'll hear, this is a story of the first elk that this listener has harvested, but it's not quite a success story. Things didn't go as planned, lots of challenges were encountered, lessons learned, SOS buttons pushed, and more. So dive into this, you'll hear a lot that you can take away, whether you're a newer elk hunter, as this gentleman was, or you've been hunting for many years but haven't maybe encountered some specific scenarios, you can take something away from this episode as I did myself. Before we do dive into this discussion, I wanted to remind you that currently, here in the month of April 2022, we are doing a giveaway for a custom Chris Reeve and Exo Mountain Gear knife. And to enter, it's really simple. Just leave us your question for a future Q&A episode. So look for the link in the show description that says leave a message. Hit that link and then use whatever device you're using to leave us a quick audio message with a question for a future episode. Hit pause and do that right now. Come on back and let's dive into this conversation. Well, Matthew, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. I'm excited to chat with you, man. It's an honor, uh, Mark. You guys are uh, one of the biggest reasons I'm out there hunting. Uh, you guys are an inspiration to me, so thank you for the opportunity to be on it. Oh, you bet, dude. Um, I always love these listener stories and you sent a, a heck of an email over about a, a pretty wild hunt, <laughs> which we'll get into, but let's jump in ahead. Let's start with like some personal introduction background, whatever you want to share to let listeners know a bit about you, where you're coming from, how you got into hunting all that stuff. Absolutely. So I'm a third generation Phoenician, uh, born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, never hunted a day in my life in Arizona, although I have some regret there. Wish I did. <laughs> And, um, you know, the only, uh, extent of the hunting I had done is, uh, one dove hunt when I was like 10 years old with an oversized shotgun. And, uh, that was with my dad. And then that was it, uh, heard some stories about my dad trying to hunt and finding elk on the scouting trips and then seeing nothing. Uh, but that was about it. Never actually got to go experience any of that. And, um, yeah, so, uh, born and raised Phoenix, uh, went to school there and met my wife there so all in all pretty pretty awesome and then uh ended up going to pharmacy school down in tucson arizona at the university of arizona and once i fit once i finished there i came over to carson city nevada uh, we moved here for a job opportunity and to be closer to her family and that's when i met uh, one of my friends who invited me to go or to put in for mule deer tags and we drew our first year and uh we ended up having a last day, last minute success <laughs> on filling one of our two tags, which was just awesome. And then that got me hooked from there. And so I was probably 28, 29 uh, when I went on my first ever, and this was a rifle hunt and uh, filled that mule deer tag. And then ever since uh, I've just become obsessed as my wife would say, I listen to <laughs> podcasts like yourself, <laughs> like your guys is just pretty much every day. Um, and just try to grow and learn and study the animals when I do get drawn. And yeah, man, it's just, it's a fire that can't be extinguished. Yeah. Although this, this last hunting trip almost did. <laughs> <laughs> it tried. <laughs> yeah, it definitely tried. That's funny. So talk a bit about, um, 
just super high level. Uh, but hunting in Nevada, like you said, you know, as you get drawn of even as a resident, you know, opportunities, there, there's some good ones, right. But there's still, uh, yeah. you kind of got to wait your turn in some respects. So we got guys listening yes. from all over the country and even other countries. So just like a super, like from your perspective as a Nevada resident, what, what does opportunity look like for you in state? So there is tons of amazing opportunity. Uh, like you said, um, it's in, it's in, there's not a ton of tags and there's just the ever growing presence of people putting in and applying for these hunts. So the competition is pretty stiff. Um, Nevada definitely favors residents over non-residents like most Western states. So I've been a Nevada resident for eight years now and I've drawn four hunts, uh, two mule deer, one pronghorn, um, antelope, and then uh, one bull elk hunt. And so I've been pretty fortunate uh, to draw when I did with the points that I did. Um, they, they also do uh, point squaring. Uh, so they'll take whatever points you have and then square it. So you get two points, you get four entries into the, into the draw. Mm-hmm. And then also to kind of help with competition and make it a little more fair, once you draw certain species, they have washout periods. So whether or not you fill your tag, uh, I have to wait seven years before I can put in for bull elk again. I can still put in for spike and cow, but bull elk, I can't apply for seven years, whether I, whether I fill my tag or not. And then pronghorn, uh, similar, I, I believe it's a three-year washout. I could be wrong on that. Hmm. Um, but the hunting is, is world-class. Um, it's amazing. It's not easy by any means, um, but it's, they definitely manage their animals well to give you trophy grade, uh, you know, animals to hunt when you do draw. So that's not, that's not really where I'm at with my hunting career. I'm, I consider myself a meat hunter. Um, basically if it's legal and it looks healthy and like good eating, I'm going to go for it. (laughs) I'm not holding out or anything like that. (laughs) Yeah. Man, I didn't realize there was a seven year wait on bull elk for residents and that it was applicable even if you don't fill your tag yeah it's brutal (laughs) unless i was misinformed but i'm 99.9 percent sure that that i just read that like a couple months ago and it's it's brutal like it's a little depressing it it made me look to go out of state for bull out because i don't even have the opportunity again and you cannot accumulate points during that time either so you're like literally on the sideline wow man you don't even get points huh no (laughs) it's brutal man yeah. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Right. Cause if you came in like, yeah, I'm in the penalty box, but I'm, I'm going to hit the ice again with seven points. Uh, yeah. Definitely yeah changes exactly. things. <laughs> it's not really, it's not really taking you out of the game, which yeah. like, I get it. They want everyone to have the opportunity to go on a world-class bull elk, but it seems a little strict to me, especially for the residents. I might have to write a letter or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, there's, there's, going to be inherent trade-offs to managing for quality versus managing for opportunity in Nevada, certainly a state that's managed for quality. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely recommend if you're looking for different type of terrain to hunt, um, quality, um, you know, you're going to have to wait, you know, you're probably not going to draw for a while. Uh, kind of like how I'm, I've been put, I just started putting in, uh, for tags with my dad in Arizona. And I'm like, I'm not going to draw anytime soon, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's fun to think that I might, and I might have that opportunity over time with either my kids or my nephews or something, you know, be able to go and take them out, which would be awesome. <laughs> so the, the hunt we want to talk about today was your bull elk, uh, tag, correct? Yes. Yeah. And so what, I guess, 
start at the very beginning. You found out you draw. I guess you're pretty dang stoked. Did you feel overwhelmed at the opportunity as well? Absolutely. Uh, I was, <laughs> so I was a little bit um, stunned in that I drew pronghorn and bull elk at the, in the same year. And um, I was super blessed on my pronghorn hunt. Ended up filling my tag. My dad was able to come with me. So that was super memorable and just awesome, which kind of took me to a high. Um, I did on that hunt. I had a uh, <laughs> pronghorn I shot. Uh, was it, you know, probably like a two-year-old one with like some pretty decent, you know, uh, horns, but right after I shot him, like a just world-class trophy walked right by his body. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh man, <Yeah. laughs> Which, again, I'm not a trophy hunter, but it was kind of just like, Hey, maybe you should have been more patient. <laughs> right. Uh, but just kind of, that, that kind of like springboarded me into my elk hunt and gave me a lot of confidence. Um, and then my scope on my gun, I, I was shoot, I'm shooting a, or I own a 270 Winchester, uh, just like a savage, you know, pretty inexpensive gun. But my scope um, just went haywire on me and I could not sight it in. And like every time we'd go out, it would get worse, which was like the most disheartening thing ever. <laughs> and um, so we ended up actually ended up borrowing my father-in-law's rifle and was able to, it's a super nice rifle. I was able to shoot it one time. The range was closed that week when I decided to scrap my gun. So we went up into the hills and like, I shot it really well, which gave me a little bit of that confidence back, but I was still pretty intimidated and pretty, um, yeah, just, I would say intimidated by the, the magnitude of the hunt, the area I put in for, um, it's the, it's up in the Northern part It's called the garbage wilderness. And it is, uh, it is no joke. <laughs> First of all, you mm. think wilderness and like, you're like, okay, how bad could it really be? And it's, it's not for the faint of heart, man. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say that right now. Yeah. Um, and, and I learned that the hard way for sure, as, as we'll get to in the story, but I also had uh, one of, I had a couple of people that were going to come with me and help me. And one of the guys had to back out last minute because um, his grandmother fell and like broke her hip or her leg or something pretty bad. And so I ended up having one other guy with me pretty much the entire time I was there, but they kind of had their own limitations. Uh, one of one of the hunters was a little bit older and in need of uh, some sh shoulder surgery, but super knowledgeable. He's like one of my mentors. And so like, you know, he definitely helped me get through, especially once, you know, the weather turned on us. He definitely helped me get through it. But mm. so when, yeah, so I ended up still having some help, but not as much as I would have hoped for. <laughs> yeah. Timing, like when did you find out that you got the tag and then this was the rifle tag? When is that season? Like when is opening day? So what type of, yeah, basically between finding out you had it and then kicking off your hunt, what does that look like in the calendar? Yeah. So I had time. Um, so I was drawn, I, we find out the results. They're usually in May. The days vary depending on how the department, you know, gets their stuff together and how they, all, they do their, they do like aerial surveys, get a feel for how many animals there are. And then they'll assess tags based on how many animals there are, which is a good, it's a science-based way to do it. I think they do a really good job, which is pretty cool. Um, so I found out in May, uh, that I drew both hunts uh, was able to finagle work. So I, I am a, a registered pharmacist and during the pandemic, man, it's been a crazy two years for us, like just nonstop, like work, 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 vaccines like crazy. And 
just crazy. Like every day for two years in our lives has been crazy. So to even get like three weeks off to go for these hunts was a blessing within itself. So, um, found out in May and then the, um, pronghorn hunt was in late August, early September and the elk hunt, I believe opening day was October 21st. Mm. And, um, we had planned to get up there on the 19th to 20th to kind of set up and try to do a day of scouting. And so I had, I had quite a few months, but, um, you know, being that pandemic pharmacist, um, didn't have a lot of time to really train and get in shape. Like I would have liked to have. Like I thought I was in okay shape and I was maybe in okay shape for like prairie hunting, <laughs> but definitely not for wilderness hunting. I found out. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what yeah. do you feel like was the, the biggest lack in your physical conditioning or, you know, like looking back at the hunt now, it's like, okay, if I, if I knew what I know now, if I experienced this and see what my weaknesses or, you know, lack of capabilities were, and I had the time to train as I'd want, what would you do? Yeah. So heavy training with heavy loads. So I did a lot of weighted training in the 30 to 50 pound range, but I never really pushed it beyond that. So I had decided before the hunt that this, this country is pretty brutal <laughs> unless you get lucky. And so I had, had prearranged it with an outfitter to get um, my meat packed out. So I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, joking myself that I could pack out the quarters, especially where I ended up uh, tagging my bull, but, um, just training with those heavy loads. So if I am presented with that, um, I would, you know, be better fit for that. Um, better cardio, um, just more lose some weight, just getting better overall physical shape and definitely strength training, especially legs. And, uh, and I would even say upper body because those quarters are no joke, man. Those things are heavy. Mm -hmm. Um, you gotta, you gotta be pretty strong to be able to even heft those things into trees and whatnot, especially if you're doing it by yourself. Um, like just getting a leg up to try to get it off uh, on a hind quarter it is an art within itself when you're doing it solo. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned earlier, this, uh, older gentleman who was able to help you a bit, kind of a mentor. I think you mentioned you had some experience in the area. Is that right? Or how did you feel about, all right, I have this tag, but how do I actually break this down, start to look for elk, whether that's, you know, picking spots and e-scouting, planning the scouting trip, relying on somebody like maybe this guy who had some intel or knowledge to share. Um, so narrowing down where you're going to hunt. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I did a tremendous amount of e-scouting um, using Onyx um, and uh, just kind of a little bit of Google Earth, but more Onyx. Just kind of trying to find like the saddles and, you know, bridges, access points where you could kind of get to just good glassing points. And I narrowed it down. I probably had about 15 spots um, in the wilderness. It's a little tougher, like access wise, because you're not, there's no motorized vehicles once you're in the actual wilderness. So like you got to find the different like routes and roads to get to different points and then hike to where you're going to glass because um, the animals are pretty much all in the wilderness. So I did a ton of e-scouting and I kind of what I found and what I learned through podcasts and just my own like like um, just preparations is I kind of, you know, had about 10 areas that I knew I wanted to look at. And then I kind of went to my hunting partner um, and we broke those down and what he thought of them. And he had hunted, uh, I don't believe he had hunted bull elk, but he had hunted cow elk prior. Um, so a little bit different season, but he knew the lay of the land. And so we ended up doing one uh, physical scouting trip out there. 
to kind of plot our paths and find camps, potential campsites. And so we did that in September. Um, and we kind of, we looked for elk, but not really because we knew that they were probably going to be in a different area, uh, versus, you know, rifle season. And, um, so yeah, we kind of went in, found out, we found some, a little, like, uh, it was like a forest service campsite that actually had like an outhouse and stuff. Um, so, and then we found some alternate campsites too. So backups to everything, got to do a little bit of hiking and get experienced with the, with the area. And then, yeah, he kind of, you know, definitely a lot of wisdom passed on there. He's a very smart guy and he's a good hunter. He's been doing it for longer than I've been alive. So yeah. I definitely, uh, listen when he talks. <laughs> That's super smart. Just to kind of highlight what you mentioned there, um, you know, realizing, I just feel like when we say scouting or preseason scouting, a lot of guys' minds, they just immediately go to finding animals. Right. But as you said, you're, you're essentially at this point, scouting for access, scouting for, um, campsites, things like that, knowing that, and again, it depends on your context, depends when you're scouting in relation to your hunt. But definitely if, if guys are thinking, oh, I'm going to do this scouting trip in July, but my tags in October, it's like realizing that maybe the target for your scouting trip in July isn't to find elk. It's where to anticipate they may be. It's to look for prior year sign, but then it's to handle like those logistics and access. And like, I thought this looks good on a map, but is it huntable? Right. Um, yes. versus just going every scouting trip that only focuses animals. There's often more, more value to the other things, uh, not the animals, but again, that depends on time and context for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and this area is about a nine hour drive for us. So it's not super close. Nevada's a big state. Um, but yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's just kind of understanding that, you know, elk have the summer and wintering grounds and they have to move, especially in these super high mountains where, you know, you're at 8,000 feet at, at your camp level. And, um, yeah, just kind of understanding that and the limitations of access to, uh, these wilderness areas where you got to respect, respect that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was really valuable. In fact, if you can do it, I would, highly, I would, I couldn't recommend it more. It's and, and things on, on Google maps and Onyx look so different in person. Like those little, <laughs> those little elevation, uh, markers <laughs> on, on those maps just do no justice until you get out there in person. You're like, Oh my gosh, what did I get in, get myself into here? <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. So leading up to the trip, it sounds like, uh, from the story, just beforehand, you guys had some sickness go in the house. You're, you're leaving your wife for quite a while with kids still sick and all kinds of stuff. It's never, it's never fun or like, it just adds a whole new element of stress to like go on a big hunt like this and know that stuff at home isn't left in like an ideal state. That's tough. Yeah. I, I have a new appreciation and love for my wife. There's no question. <laughs> we all got the stomach flu. Um, and one after the other and my son, for whatever the reason on this particular one could not shake it. The kid was, you know, sick for two straight weeks. I'm not going to go into details on your podcast, but it was <laughs> not pretty. <laughs> and, uh, just, yeah, it was very stressful leaving a sick household, especially when, you know, they're toddlers, they're young and they're just so much to take care of when they're sick. And, um, yeah, to have that kind of support from your, uh, from your significant other is, uh, it, I definitely got a, a new appreciation for her and love her all the more. 
and yeah. um, definitely try to do a little bit more and keep that in the back of my mind when I'm not on hunting trips <laughs> and she wants something done. Uh, I definitely try to do that for her. <laughs> definitely more so than, than prior to that. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Agreed. That's how you know you got to keep her. <laughs> I'm yeah. trying to get her out in the field, but we'll see. She's right. really good at shooting, but she just, I just, she doesn't want, doesn't want to make that crossover yet. Yeah. Nice. So you guys head up, as you mentioned before, you're heading up a, a couple of days early, um, even before opening day, were you guys able to kind of get camp set up and then spend time and actually locate any elk? Yeah. So we were able to get out there. We actually got our primary camping spot, which was awesome because it made our lives a heck of a lot easier um, and got all set up. And I, I had purchased a, I mean, it was a lower end, but I purchased a wall tent, um, to try to, you know, just cause I knew we were going to get some weather and I didn't want to be on a smaller tent. And, um, we did, we were able to do some scouting and I actually found a large herd of elk, which was so exciting. Um, the last elk I had seen in person was as a teenager in Northern Arizona, where I was able to sneak up with my friend to about 30 yards from a herd of elk. And just remember this, this bull running up to me, probably wasn't the smartest thing in retrospect, but this thing ran up to me and just looked down at me. Like I was just like this insignificant, like ground squirrel. And then just walked away. Like what didn't even run away, like walked away. Like, Oh yeah, that's not a threat. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, we located this, uh, large herd of elk and I just, I watched them for, oh man, probably four hours. Um, what was cool was that there was a very large, uh, herd bull. Um, he was, it looked about a seven point. I mean, maybe, you know, I didn't have a spotter on me, so definitely could have been a little smaller, but it was the biggest elk I'd ever seen for sure. And, um, there was about eight to 10, uh, satellite bulls about four or 500 yards away up on a mountain, like hillside in the shade, just, and they were all sparring with each other, which was super awesome to watch cool. <laughs> even from a distance. It was so cool. So like, yeah. I was like, just in awe, adrenaline through the roof. There's, there's one other car like at the trailhead, but we were, you know, about three miles in. I hadn't seen anyone. I'm like, all right, these are my elk. <laughs> I leg played to them. These are my elk. <laughs> and, uh, you know, kind of made a plan, made, made a mistake on here. Uh, I should have followed them and put them to bed. And instead, I just didn't want to spook them or anything. And so I kind of let them be. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to get back to this area first thing opening day like i'm hoping that i'll catch them coming through this um saddle uh to go to bed and it was like a full moon that night and so i'm like oh they'll probably be up feeding in this upper meadow all night and then they're going to come back down here you know and bed down and yeah so that ended up uh being not a good plan <laughs> <laughs> as i as i found out the next day um because uh there was a uh, quite a few other hunters that I guess had access different somehow access a different route. I'm not still not sure how they must've gone a really long ways, um, like horses or something, but they had put in a satellite, a uh, spike camp, um, up behind that meadow. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, so yeah, that next day, uh, I heard gunshots, but it wasn't my gun. That's for sure. Wow. So you, like you said before, there's one kind of one car at the trailhead. You weren't seeing many people. You think you have this kind of I don't want to say heard to yourself, but as you said, kind of like claim, then that's not how it went. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. So I was, I, yeah, in my mind, this was my elk herd, which was absolutely insane looking back at it. But, um, I'm like, nobody else even knows they're here. Like yeah. this is, Positive you know, thoughts, right. I like it. I like yeah. 
<laughs> exactly. I don't want to jinx it. So like I got up at 3 a.m. that next day. Like my hunting partner was like, nope, not doing it. I'll meet you out there some other time, like later in the day. So I was up at 3 a.m. I was hiking in the dark uh, to get, uh, and it was, it was a pretty brutal hike. I'd say it was about, it was about two and a half miles on a trail and then another mile and a half through some pretty rough stuff uh, to get kind of to a point where I could be within shooting range of where the elk had been bedded down and where they kind of, I could see that saddle where they're kind of coming to and from this upper meadow. And, um, I did bump, uh, some elk in the middle of the night when I was hiking. Um, they saw me and they were kind of coming from some heavy timber to that meadow. So I don't know if that, I don't know if they would have gone down to where I ended up and I just bumped them out. It, It was pitch black, but they, they stared me down and then they definitely went the other direction and I could see him with my headlamp. So they weren't that far away. So that was definitely a bit of a bummer and kind of exciting and kind of terrifying because it was pitch black and I was by, my, you know, by myself mm-hmm. and I'd never seen an elk up close. So, uh, at least not in 25 years. So yeah, I get down, um, just, you know, free climbing through some nasty, nasty ruggedness and get to my spot. You know, here comes, you know, the sunrise shooting light. And then all of a sudden it's just right. I mean, it sounded like they were doing like the, the salute, like, uh, you know, arms bearers shooting up into the (laughs) the Mm -hmm. sky. Like there's probably, I probably heard five or six gunshots at least in the first 15 minutes of uh, shooting light. Wow. And I, yeah, I just, I hung out there, hung out there. No elk, no elk, uh, you know, kind of went back a little dejectedly and, um, yeah, ended up not seeing anything else that day. Looked at a couple different spots. We ended up getting back to uh, camp. And, um, one of the other people that had been camping with us had actually gotten the herd bull that I saw and, um, actually for, uh, broke the antler off, uh, one of the antlers with a bullet, <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, dang. Uh, which was pretty insane. And I mean, this thing was just incredible. Like it, it's like out of like the hunting, you know, um, hunting shows that Randy Newberg and them are put and you got videos that you guys are putting out, like just these massive, awesome trophy bulls. And, um, so that was pretty cool. We talked to them and that's kind of how we found out they had had a spike camp and they had been up in there like three or four days. They had horses. Like it was, mm. it was a no joke operation. Like they were not messing around, but that was a little bit, a little bit disheartening that they took, they took my herd bull from me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, although so, they had put in more work than I had, so I didn't feel too bad about it. <laughs> right. So a big part of like where the story goes from here has to do with the big weather system, which you can talk about. But at this point, yes. did you know that this weather system was coming? Or if you didn't know there was some weather, did you need to know how severe it was going to be? Like how aware were you? So yeah. So on the 10 day forecast, we knew weather was coming. We didn't know how bad it was going to be. Um, my partner hunting partner had uh in reach um i did not and he he ended up letting me borrow it once he left uh, because he had to go to like a reunion but he um he was checking it getting weather updates and so we kind of had an idea that it was getting worse but at first it's just one day of you know snow and then it's uh, maybe two days of snow And so we're like, okay, like, you know, that doesn't seem too bad. Like, we're not going to run. Like, we're going to, you know, stick it out. 
And that next day, so second day of actual hunting, um, we had glassed up two nice bulls um, on an opposing hillside, but it was too late in the day and that we could see that storm coming in. And we're just like, no, nah, we're not going to chance it. Like, it's, it's just too far away. They're probably at least two miles away. And just realistically to get there is just, I mean, you got to be, you got to be like, you know, doing iron man to be able to get over there quickly. So, um, so yeah, so we kind of, uh, you know, went to bed with snow starting to fall that day, that second day, uh, in the evening. And what we didn't know is that this storm. So over that night, the storm had turned into an atmospheric river, um, and just had kind of just gotten a lot stronger than the initial forecasts, uh, had predicted. And so it went from one day of snow to three to four days of heavy snow, but we didn't know, you know, if the whole thing was going to hit, it was coming through California and, and Western Nevada. And we didn't know if it was going to come up because we we're right on the Idaho border. So we're like, well, you know, we're not going to, you know, leave right, especially not right away. You know, we had put so much into this. I had set aside 10 days to just hunt. And that was all I had. I, I couldn't, you know, leave for a week and then come back and hunt for another week. I didn't have that kind of flexibility in my schedule. So, um, so yeah, it was kind of just woke up to a brutal, uh, just a brutal storm, man. It was just nonstop and it would alternate. It would snow about six to 12 inches and then it would turn into rain during the day and melt all that snow. So like everything's sinking into the ground it's sodden we're throwing rocks on our tent stakes and stuff 40 mile an hour winds just you're just miserable my little uh i didn't have a wood burner i didn't prepare for that i I absolutely should have in retrospect um but didn't really have a way to warm up um Mm. my little i bought a little heater uh and it ended up like not even working (laughs) (laughs) and i had not tested it so that was my own fault but uh, yeah, we, we ended up getting just beaten down by this storm for four straight days of just heavy snow, heavy rain, heavy snow, heavy rain. The only other guys that were still on the mountain were the guys that had bagged that trophy out because they were still trying to get it off, off of their mountain and break their spike camp down. Oh, and then really? One, yeah. So they, they had some, some major issues. I mean, they had horses too, so they were able to get it out, but I think if they hadn't had horses, I don't think they would have been able to, uh, with these storms and there's them. And then there's one guy in a super nice, like trailer who never came out of his trailer. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was really demoralizing. It really gets in your head. You're cold and wet all the time. You just kind of lose your morale. And, um, and like three, four days of those conditions, like time slows down like that. That's a long time to just be suffering through that. Yeah. Yeah. And hunting. Exactly. You're not hunting. You're every hour we had to go clear snow because every there's so much of it that all of our stuff was like wanting to cave in on itself. And it was just so much. And like I had prepared to some extent, but I was not ready for a storm that big. And I probably should have left the mountain. <laughs> this is October 20 something. Yeah. So that was like October 24th or 5th. So okay. they, they get storms and especially in the mountains, you never know what it's going to be, Yeah. but they got more 
moisture in that storm than they had, I think, like the entire prior, like almost a year. Wow. It was just incredible the amount of moisture that comes down in an atmospheric river. <laughs> it's, it's well named because it is insane. Wow. So yeah. at what point, like dealing with this for, you know, a couple of few, several days in a row at this point, at what point is it, are you able to actually even start hunting again? Well, so this storm did finally break my resolve. Um, my hunting partner had to leave and, and break down his camp. And so finally we got to the point where we were a little bit worried about getting stuck. Um, we got about a foot and a half of snow that wasn't melting. Um, and we're like, I had a trailer and I just didn't want to get stuck up there. And so we ended up moving down the mountain. Um, and my other friend had come out to meet me. And so we kind of met there. My other hunting partner left and we set up a new base camp. I left part of my camp and my wall tent all set up hoping that I could come back to it. Um, and we dropped about two to 3000 feet in elevation where it was just dumping rain on you instead of snow. And we finally, we spent one more day down there. So we ended up losing or ended up losing a little over four days, if not five due to the storm. And so after that, we were able to, you know, it finally let up enough to where it's just overcast and we were able to go out and start hunting again. But when we tried to go back up the mountain, they had gotten two to anywhere, two to four feet of snow. And you just, you couldn't access the wilderness was completely inaccessible to anybody. There's people stuck all over the place trying to get up there. And so we ended up deciding for safety reasons, we were going to, we ended up hunting about a day and a half down at those lower elevations and found some areas that I had marked as like emergency backup areas on mm -hmm. my e-scouting that were at a lower elevation. <laughs> and it wasn't, I, it wasn't ideal, but you know, you're going to make do and I'd rather hunt and maybe see something than to do nothing and wait for the best spots to open back up. Man. And it's, <laughs> I had to like, laugh when I was reading your story in this email that you sent because I'm, you know, get through all of what you described. And then you talk about, okay, now it's, you know, after these couple of days, it's lower elevations, snow's finally melting off and you can go back up at higher elevation. And after this whole storm and all this mess, then you say, and that's when everything went to hell. So I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> it already sounded like it was for the last four or five days. So, yeah. So, so yeah. So what I didn't know is that I had it good until <laughs> 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 we went back up into the wilderness post storm into, into all that snow. And, uh, yeah, so we didn't see anything at lower elevations except for a lot of mountain lion tracks. And those that mountain lion was definitely stalking us because his tracks would back up, you know, cover our tracks and it was all fresh. <laughs> so that was a little bit eerie. Uh, and we had, my friend had his nine-year-old son and it was his first ever hunt. Um, so, you know, we're always a little worried about him too, putting him between us, making sure keeping an open eye on everything. And, um, yeah, so we were able to get back up and get back up into the wilderness. We couldn't access the area I wanted to, where I'd seen like the herd and where those guys pulled those elk out of, cause it was another thousand feet up and then the hike in and whatnot. There was just too much snow. You just, you couldn't do it. And I had brought snowshoes as like a super big backup, but he didn't have any and I didn't want to separate. I wanted to try to stay together uh, for safety reasons. And um, 
we had one in reach. We did have walkie talkies, although he didn't check his batteries. <laughs> so <laughs> turns out a dead walkie talkie is pretty useless. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, we get up and get to one of our glassing points uh, where we had seen uh, two elk across like a big, giant, massive ridge on an opposite hillside. Uh, we had seen two bulls that had been bedded down prior to the storm, prior to getting, you know, just dumped on. And just, just getting side hilling on that stuff where you're still in six to 12 inches of snow. And then, you, you know, you'll pothole and just completely eat it. Um, just it's so much harder than you think. And, you know, being a Phoenix boy, I didn't really grow up with much snow. <laughs> so like we go up north and, and experience it a little bit. But to hunt in it is just another it's another it's another level of difficulty that I, I had not foreseen so um yeah so we uh we went up on the uh glassing point and uh my hunting partner had spotted a bull and it was down a draw and it is so deceiving because from up there it looked like it was maybe a mile away maybe probably less than that and so that's kind of when i had uh planned that you know what like this is a good bull and we kind of had just like this narrow glimpse down this really st steep, um, you know, just little like draw that it, it looked steep, but it looked doable. Mm -hmm. And, and we had, we had decided, and again, and this is another mistake, um, that he would stay up there and kind of signal to me whether or not I had to keep going and whether or not I was kind of in line with it. Cause I had to go through some really thick stuff and, so I kind of dawned on me that after, you know, about an act. So let's back up a little. So it, we probably spotted this bull around, I'd say probably about three o'clock, two thirty, three, And it gets dark up there a little earlier up in, the, up in the mountains. And so by the time I got down to where I could see the bull, <laughs> which was ended up not being one mile, ended up being at least two miles. Um, if not two and a half. Um, so I can finally see this bull and it was just the most God forsaken country I've ever experienced. Just <laughs> thick, thick, thick trees, like just the steepest declines where you have six to 10 inches of snow on top of just loose rock. And then you just slide down out of control. Um, I got up to where I thought I could shoot the bull and ranged it. And it was like still 1200 yards away. <laughs> and I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, I thought it was a joke. Like it, yeah. I thought it was moving further away or something, or the tectonic plates in the earth were shifting and creating a rift between us. <laughs> and, um, so just kept pressing on, pressing on. And so finally I get, to a point, you know, definitely made some boneheaded mistakes on the way. My rangefinder slipped off my wrist, and uh, I actually ended up having to go back up this awful hill to retrieve it because, um, yeah, didn't want to leave that behind. Uh, couldn't walk away from that, and um, left my trekking poles on the ground once to go get a better look and then just kind of kept going and then realized halfway down that I didn't have my trekking poles. Oh, man. I had to go back and get them. But I was really good at checking my wind, even though I was making these other completely novice mistakes with gear and stuff. 
and um, finally get down to the, it was the third like little no, like there are like these little knolls of like, I shouldn't say little, there's big outcroppings of rock that kind of broke up the draw. And I thought I could shoot the elk from the first one. And in reality, I couldn't shoot it until I was on the third knoll. And that was about two miles from where we glassed it. And it was, I would say I ranged it at 295 yards. Um, and I was about by then, you know, it's, it, it took at least two hours to get down there. So it's like five, five fifteen right in there. So it's starting to, it's getting dark. Like I maybe have like 15 to 20 minutes of shooting light left. Um, and I'm kind of just sitting there and I'm like, I just went through hell to get here. I just sat through snow hell for four days. Like I'm 290 yards away from this elk. I have a clear broadside shot on this thing because it must've smelled me or hurt. I don't think it smelled me. I think it heard me and it kind of came to investigate and just presented this amazing shot. So I made the decision that I was going to pull the trigger. I had in the back of my mind, like I have a, you know, I have, so I'm going to pack it out. Like I'm not going to get, I, there's no way I could pack this out uh, myself. So I'm going to have, you know, pay an outfitter to pack it out and um, yeah, pulled the trigger and shot was true and ended up, it, it sprinted downhill out of my line of sight. And so I kind of scrambled down this knoll. And what I didn't realize was that this knoll was sitting on top of like a sheer drop off. And it was about 1500 more feet, just vertical, probably 35, 40 degree slope to get down (laughs) to then go back up and get to where this elk was. So it was a 290 yard shot. But it was, you know, a 1,500-yard trek through more brutal country to get down there. Yeah. So, so I get down there and, um, you know, have that brief freakout moment like, okay, I don't, you know, really see any blood. It's getting dark. Like, I got to find this animal, especially if I have to shoot it again because it just took off. I couldn't see it. I didn't know if it was dead or not. And um, so I get I kind of go a little bit. I knew it, I knew it went downhill, walks that direction and saw that it had gone about 50 yards and then dropped. So that was a huge like sigh of relief for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, just knowing that, that at least it was a clean kill shot. It didn't suffer or anything like that. And that I had a bull down. So I was super stoked. Yeah. Dang, man. Was that like in the moment? It, it's always interesting. Like it's your first elk, right? But you have all these other things going on. You're exhausted. Daylight's gone. Like there's all these other variables complicating your ability to like sit and reflect. Like, all right, I just killed an elk. This is great because you have all this extra (laughs) stress of things, right? Yes. Yes. So yeah, it was was unreal. Um, Especially once I got up on this thing, you just have no idea how big these animals are and just get this like, like shock and awe (laughs) at like i just killed a horse with antlers like (laughs) (laughs) this thing is amazing it's beautiful it's majestic and now what am i going to do with it (laughs) yeah wow man so it's at this point it's 
you're exhausted. It's dark. And yeah, what, I mean, what do you do? How do you start to break it down at this point? And you're, you are solo, right? Yeah. So my hunting partner and me split up and then I lost sight of him. Uh, once I figured out where I had to go, he like directed me on the like pathway to take. And then I thought he was going to follow me and he didn't. (laughs) Um, and so then, so I, you know, after hooting and hollering and getting all, all that excess energy out, um, I realized that I had, I was just drenched in sweat. So like climbing down that, um, I'd been intentional about, you know, minimizing my layering, uh, for that trek down and just putting all my extra stuff in my pack. And so I immediately get all that wet stuff off and put it onto a tree branch and get all my like dry stuff on. And when I went to get all my dry stuff on, I realized that I did not have, uh, my Merino mid layer that I'd packed the whole trip (laughs) except for this day. (laughs) And so I had a puffy jacket. I had an outer shell jacket, um, for the more like brutal, um, tree you know, bashing through timber and stuff. And, but yeah, I didn't have that. So that was a huge downer and kind of depressed my spirits a little bit. And, um, but yeah, got my dry clothes on and kind of just did an assessment. I got on the radio and started trying to get my hunting partner on the radio and he, you know, no response. So I'm like, well, I'm going to go ahead and try to start breaking this thing down. It's getting dark and I can just feel that temperature just tanking. Uh, it's amazing. It probably dropped 20 degrees in, in 15 minutes. <laughs> At least that's what it felt like. And, um, so yeah, so I started processing the elk. Uh, I had started, uh, or I uh, studied the gutless method. Um, and I thought I downloaded it to my phone, but it turns out I only downloaded it to my iCloud, which does you no good <laughs> when you're in the wilderness. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I had to just kind of go from memory of that and, uh, started quartering my elk and got the, I got it all opened up like the whole hide, got the back quarter off and hung in a tree. And while I was working on my elk, I could hear my hunting partner like yelling my name. And so I'm, I'm yelling back to him. I'm trying the radio and, you know, after about an hour, like the yelling just kind of stopped and I'm like, I'm so focused on trying to, I'm like, I got to just keep working. I got to get this elk, you know, broken down and then I'll get out of here. And I'm like, I was committed. Like, I'm going to get this entire thing hung in trees. Doesn't matter how long it takes. Like I got warm layers and stuff. Like I'm fine. And turns out I was absolutely not fine. (laughs) Um, so as I'm getting the front quarter off, so I have the back quarter off, I have it opened up. I'm getting the front quarter off. And as I get it off, um, I just, I drop my knife and I'm like, okay, well, that's strange. So I go to pick it up and like my fingers don't work. And I'm like, uh Oh, <laughs> so, um, I kind of just like did an assessment. Like I went back, you know, had an initial, like a little bit of anxiety freak out, um, did an assessment just kind of of myself. And I'm like, I can't feel my feet like at all. Like they're completely numb. And so I, I had purchased some like 800, um, um, thin slit, uh, boots. So they were, you know, very well insulated. Uh, I believe it was synthetic down 
and um, had gone to pretty extensive, you know, had some high quality merino wool socks and whatnot. And I'm like, okay, why can't I feel my feet? You know, I've, I've been cold and wet for four days straight. So like having a little bit of numbness or coldness was kind of the norm at that point. I was kind of just frozen mm-hmm. <laughs> more or less, but this was definitely different. And so when I got my boots off, they were just like sodden wet inside. My socks are soaking wet. Um, so when I, what I had just kind of went back mentally, what had happened was when I had shot my bull and I was on that super, super steep, awful, inc- you know, decline sliding down the hill. Um, I had potholed some snow when I was, um, crossing a log and there was a stream of runoff and it was pretty big stream, I guess. And my feet went on either side of the log completely under the snow. And then, you know, I, I didn't think anything of it. Like I just kept going. I'm like, Oh, no big deal. I had bought some gators prior to this hunt and they did not fit around my boots. <laughs> so I had to return them and didn't have time to order a, a replacement pair. And so I don't know if that would have made a difference in this case, just kind of preventing that. So what ended up had happened was when my feet went under, they went, they submerged under that water. And I didn't even notice because I had so much adrenaline going on as I'm just plowing through to get to where I had shot my elk. And so what had happened is I had gotten just my core body temperature tanked. Um, I couldn't sustain it because I had wet feet and, you know, didn't notice, which you don't think is possible when you're not in it. But when you're in the heat of the moment, just took a shot on an elk, like you're not really thinking about your feet and your, you know, your, your, your adrenaline's going, you want to go and make sure the elk's down and you're just more excited than anything. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, so I, uh, so I quickly found out that my feet were soaking wet. Uh, by then it had been, it was pitch black. could see about four to five feet in front of me with my headlamp. And I kind of, ha- I couldn't use my hands. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, starting a fire is um, definitely out of the question. Everything was soaking wet. And at that point I could barely use my hands. So there was probably no way I could work tools. And um, so I'm like, I got to get out of here. And so I wrung my socks out. And I had about 10 hand warmer, hand warmer and body warmer, little like pack things, mm-hmm. threw them in my boots <laughs> and, um, just kind of took off. Uh, and you know, that was, that was hard going down. It was 10 times harder getting out, <laughs> uh, in the pitch black and by yourself, which was, you know, pretty terrifying. And at that point I knew I had, I had onset of high hypothermia. And, um, I lost some glove. I lost one of my gloves because I just dropped it and was too tired to go get it. <laughs> just like, I don't even care at that point. I just tried not to drop my, uh, my phone with my Onyx map. Jeez. And I was, I, I had been doing a trail tracker the whole time. And so I was following that trail out. And what was a little misleading on that though, is that when I had done my pursuit down, I had done a lot of like backtracking and like trying to find the way down. So the trail was not super clear. Like there was a lot of little different, weird little like paths. And if I didn't have Onyx, I'd, I'd still be on that mountain. Uh, they would have found, they would have found my cold 
dead body in the <laughs> snow for sure. Um, I just, I know that without a doubt. Um, cause I got turned around five times at least where I'm like, okay, that looks right. And then I look at my thing and my little marker, unless you're moving, it's not like giving you a true accurate to fix in. And, um, I was going the completely wrong direction and your my sense of direction is to keep going that way. But I'm trusting that this little met, this little point on this map is, is right. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a hard, like I've been there where your sense of direction feels one thing, but then the data, whether that's on X or something else is like saying something else. And that's like a hard thing to overcome. Like when your instinct is this way is North or I need to go this way, regardless of what direction that is. Like, what's in your gut and when the data is different it's like a, it puts you in a really weird spot man yeah it's it's absolutely conflicting and really messes with your mind and when when you're becoming hypothermic your just to think is very challenging um everything kind of just starts shutting down your blood your body is shunting blood to to protect your heart and brain uh but even then you're getting restricted blood flow to the brain so you're not definitely you're not super lucid. You're not making the best of decisions when you're in that kind of state. Um, and about halfway up uh, this mountain, uh, I ended up pushing because I had had the inReach on me, but my hunting partner didn't have one. So again, I couldn't talk to him. <laughs> um, but I ended up pushing the SOS button on it because um, I, I legitimately was afraid that I might not get out of there. Um, and what I didn't know because it wasn't my device and I'd had no experience with it is that once you hit the SOS button, they start texting you. (laughs) And so I had hit that SOS button and I didn't want to lose the thing. So I just put it in my pat in my pocket and never looked at it again. And they were trying to reach me that whole time. They were sending me messages um, asking if I was in a state of emergency and, um, I, I absolutely was, um, at that point, but I could, I didn't communicate that to him. <laughs> I didn't know I was supposed to. So what was the outcome of that? Of, oh, of having hit the SOS? Yeah. Well, yeah. Especially when they can't reach you. Right. So yeah. What ended so, up coming of that? So they notified our entire family who was also on the inReach um, communication thing, uh, like network. So freaked them out to no end. Um, yeah. And again, we had a nine-year-old with us. So, you know, my hunting partner's wife was really losing it. Um, And yeah, if if she lets him go hunting this year again, uh, I'll be shocked. Definitely not with you. (laughs) Yeah, with me. Yeah, we both now have our own range reaches and I know how to use it. (laughs) Um, so, So, yeah, so they just assumed that I wasn't responding, that I was in a state of emergency or maybe I was dead. I don't know. And so they, they called in, they called in the cavalry. I found out later, but we're so remote, um, that it was going to take them hours, hours. Cause it would come from Elko, Nevada. And we're with the snow, the way it was, they'd have to come in through Idaho. They were probably four or five hours away at least. I mean, if not next day, it's like, at what point did the, for lack of better terms, did the all clear get out there? Right. So these, these, these mm-hmm. teams rallying to come help they don't know what they're heading into how did that get de-escalated yeah so i finally got out (laughs) of of this just you know awful awful uh draw 
um, fighting, you know, through trees, losing, losing beanies and gloves and part of my soul. <laughs> um, I, I can tell you right now that multiple times on that hike out, like my instinct was, Hey, just go lay in the snow there and take a nap. And then like the like cognitive side of my brain's like, no, that's dying. We're not going to do that. <laughs> we're going to, we're just going to keep going. This is terrible, but we're going to keep going. <laughs> so that was a mental battle that I had for about an hour, uh, with my body wanting to give up, but my mind kind of prevailing in that. Um, my friend had left my, um, spotting, um, tripod up on the hill with a headlamp on in the direction of the car kind of um and because he had taken his uh his son back to the car because by then it was like 11 30 at night 11 at night and his kids freezing like he wants to get him in the warm car like i don't blame him at all <laughs> um couldn't communicate with me just assume that i was processing the elk and that you know i'd come up whenever i was done and so that was a huge help he kind of gave me like at first i thought it was him and I start, I, I threw some profanities at him for not helping me. <laughs> um, cause I'm like, Oh my gosh, what a dick. Like he's not coming to me. And then I realized that it's like not moving at all. And it's not, it's way up on this Hill. And I'm like, that's not him. It's like some kind of a signal. So I pull out, you know, my phone again, look at it, get to the car. It took me about three hours, three and a half hours to get out where it took about two hours to get down. And once I got to the car, the truck, um, he came out, you know, wanting to high five me and about three quarters of the way up. I also ran out of water. So like I could barely, you know, I could barely talk at that point. Like he quickly realized I was not okay. And so we get me into the car. Um, he gets me some like water that he had heated up, which probably wasn't a good idea. I think that might've been a shock to my system, mm. but um, so I immediately just start like uncontrollably sweating. <laughs> um, he gave me a change of clothes. I sweated through them like sodden, uh, changed into a second set of clothes. And while I was doing that, we were driving down the hill towards our camp. And so then I also started like vigorously shaking and, um, just couldn't barely talk, wanted to puke. Um, so like we kind of, you know, just assessed me, we determined that at first, it wasn't an emergency. Like I handed him the the inReach, and he turned off the SOS and responded to the stuff and said that I was okay. And then, like when we couldn't control like me, <laughs> um, I couldn't control my body temperature. Like we just, I, I I felt like I had to get out of there and should probably get seen just to be safe. Um, because at that point, like I'm shaking, I'm sweating. Like just, I'd never experienced this before. And so he actually, so when he turned the SOS button off, um, they called it off. And so then like, we're heading down the mountain and he's like, you know what? You're in bad shape. He hit the button again. Oh man. <laughs> but what you don't realize is that everybody leaves. And so then they get the thing and they start all over from the beginning. Like, is this an emergency? Where are they? Oh, we can actually gosh. communicate with them. So search and rescue probably hates me. Um, yeah. They, they never, I don't think they ever officially deployed. Um, they did definitely get together. So they kind of, you know, uh, mm -hmm. Avengers assemble or whatever. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but they, um, they, they, they didn't deploy at least to my so knowledge. So 
Yeah, there's been no like charge or you know what no. I mean? like hey you guys you know we rallied this sort of effort <laughs> not yet right <laughs> hoping that letter does not come yeah exactly okay. so once okay. we got down um it was about three hours to the nearest town driving very faster than he should be driving on these dirt roads um covered in snow <laughs> um, so we get down and we're able to get a uh, 911 on the phone and then by then i'm starting to feel a little bit more normal and not like I'm going to pass out and, and vomit and, you know, die. <laughs> I know that sounds dramatic, but at the time it definitely was not pleasant to experience. Um, so we were able to, um, 911 actually contacted the search and rescue, uh, and we turned the SOS button off. My friend did cause he was controlling it at that point. And I was just pounding water and trying not to, you know, puke in his truck. And, um, so yeah, they contacted search and rescue, told them that we were coordinating with them, that they're not needed, that they can, you know, call off the troops. We're, we're all good. And yeah, to my knowledge, they didn't deploy. I definitely appreciate anyone who's in search and rescue. Um, they're amazing people that are almost all volunteers. So I definitely, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't want to waste their time. (laughs) Um, but definitely, I think, I think it was warranted, uh, to, to push the button when I did, um, so yeah, so we ended up uh, going, uh, meeting up uh, with uh, a sheriff Matt with us as well as an ambulance. We ended up deciding we didn't need the ambulance because by the time they could, we got to each other, we were like three miles from the hospital. <laughs> mm. So we ended up just going to the hospital, getting me checked out just to be safe. Um, by then, it's like probably one, two in the morning, right around there. And they basically, luckily, no major, you know, damage or anything like that. Walked away pretty much unscathed. They said that I was moderately dehydrated and that um, I definitely had early onset hypothermia with extreme uh, cold exposure, but no, no like tissue damage. So um, that definitely got out of there just in the nick of time before things got worse. <laughs> wow. So, so yeah, so uh, we ended up, uh, yeah, we ended up staying in a hotel that night after we got discharged from the ER and wanted to get back to try to finish processing my bowl because I'm a meat hunter and I didn't want to leave any of it. That is not my goal. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so by the time we could, you know, again, it's a three and a half hour drive or so. By the time we could get back to the mountain, get to the elk. It, it probably, you know, it was about four o'clock in the afternoon and to get down to the elk again, that terrain is just so brutal. And by then a lot of the snow had melted, but everything was just slick mud, um, just awful quagmire type stuff. And we have my friend's nine-year-old hiking with us trying to get down there. <laughs> so we're going extra slow to try to, you know, a, because I'm beat up from what I went through and then B, we absolutely don't want him to get hurt out there. So, um, we get down to the animal almost, I should say, I got down to that last knoll where I shot it from. And, uh, my friend would not let his son go any further. Cause that last bit is just, I can't explain how treacherous it was. <laughs> mm. Um, and so, yeah, so I ended up staying with, uh, with the son cause he was, he was in better shape than me in terms of like, just not being physically exhausted and having gone through what I went through. And 
by the time he got there, he had about 30 minutes or so to work on the elk. Um, and I left my father-in-law's rifle by the elk because <laughs> in the heat of the moment, I'm like, that's heavy and I might not get out if I have it. And, um, so, uh, he got, he retrieved the things that I left and was able to get like a quarter hung and get like some of like the hide off the other side and like open up some of the quarters. But he was really worried because again, it's getting dark. His nine-year-old, he doesn't want him to get hurt hiking out of there. Um, so we ended up getting to do very little on it and having to leave it, which was really difficult for me. <laughs> still is. And, um, I, that morning at the hospital, we had reached out to the outfitter, but due to the storm, they couldn't get there the next day. They couldn't get there for two days. So we had to leave the elk half processed until the outfitters could come. And, um, when they did finally come, um, they were on, you know, horses and it took them four hours to get down there. Cause they had to go a super roundabout way. They didn't want their horses to break their legs <laughs> on that rough, rough terrain and that loose rock. And then it took them like another five or six hours or something insane to get out. So they were working, they, they were working on that elk between like eight or nine hours like there and back uh, approximately and they ended up cutting you know i asked them to save as much meat as they could uh, and then get the head and uh yeah so they were able to get it out and while i just kind of waited and yeah it we ended up getting all four quarters of the elk out uh we did lose one quarter later to spoilage but three were fine we got both back straps off um, but that was all we got. Everything else was starting to, to turn. Cause of course the elk where they decided to bed was that one sunny patchy spot that, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> there was no shade. So that thing was in the sun, especially where it ran down to die. Um, it, it, it took on some sun. So, yeah. yeah, when I was waiting for them to come back, it was a little like consolation to me. There had been some uh, cougars that were spotted in the area. Um, and so I'm like, in my mind, you know, that cougar got a hell of a meal out of it. So at least hopefully there was less. It was like very close to where I shot my elk too. So mm. hopefully there was uh, not too much uh, wasted because that's been the hardest thing for me to deal with is having lost, uh, lost some meat. Yeah. When you first, uh, sent sent me an email i mean literally the subject of the email is success in filling a tag does not mean a successful hunt and so i know that you know it's easy to sit here now like after the fact when uh people are listening to this or even for yourself right like you're in a different mental position <laughs> than you were then uh and yes. so it's easy to sit back and like oh man if i would have or if he would have or whatever if that looks like but um, dude, I thank you for, for being transparent and for sharing the story, because there is so much in here in terms of lessons learned things to consider, you know, even if yeah. guys aren't new elk hunters, there's, mm -hmm. there's so many guys who have hunting experience, but they've never yeah. experienced something like this before. Right. Um, yeah. and so even <laughs> me, I'm like, gosh, I want to go back and listen to this because, you know, there's things that you face that. I haven't faced like in those specific scenarios. And so I think there's so much in here that whether it's somebody's first time, like it was uh, for you on this one, your first elk hunt or 
guys who just haven't yeah. been in these types of storms or scenarios or had to think through making these decisions. Uh, it's good to think about those things beforehand rather than in the moment, especially when your thought is compromised by all the, the difficulty, the conditions, you know, potential hypothermia, all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think think through all different aspects of what could happen, closely watch the weather, um, kind of do what if scenarios in your brain. Uh, what if this happens to me? Um, definitely, I had a lot of, um, yeah, <laughs> learning opportunities, <laughs> mm-hmm. to say the least. Um, just assessing your body uh, after, you know, after you take that shot, especially if you're in... Um, conditions that are not, you know, necessarily safe, or if you're in just rough terrain or bad weather, um, take the time, assess your body head to toe. Am I, am I, do I have a gaping wound? (laughs) Are my feet soaking wet? Um, make sure your gear is, is prepared. You know, I absolutely should have had some gaiters, whether they would have helped or not, you know, who knows? Um, I like to think that they might, but, um, and then, yeah, communication, uh, it's a lifeline. And this was kind of eye-opening for me, um, not being able to talk to my hunting partner when I thought I would be able to, that was very disheartening and dangerous and, um, not knowing how to use my inReach, uh, having never, you know, really played with it or used it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then realizing that when you're in these remote wilderness, even if you hit that SOS button, they're not going to be there in 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it might take them you know, 10 to 12 hours to get to you by helicopter or however they're going to get there. And if the conditions are bad enough, they may not be able to get to you. Yeah, for sure. And like, yeah, I think of simple things of, you know, you guys hunted and you had this camp and then you kind of had these four days of weather where you're, you're just in a different context. And then when you go back to then hunt, like taking that extra time to be like, okay, let me go through my pack again. Like, I, yeah. Maybe I think I have that extra layer in my pack, but maybe I yep. pulled it out two or three days ago and I forgot. Right. So just yep. even like that change in, you know, my change in context, we went from a base camp to a backpack hunt. Now we're back at base camp. Now we're going to pack in. It's like, okay, let me go ahead and like hit this checklist again and make sure I have the basics that I need, even if it is a day hunt. Yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, and then definitely working on your uh, survival skills um i I, i've purchased a high quality like uh fire starter and striker and um blanking on the name of it but just kind of practicing with that in bad conditions wet weather wet conditions um i definitely like the dryer lint with the vaseline trick i think that's amazing um just kind of just getting good at things that you never know if you're going to need like if i because if i had identified that my feet were wet and i could have before i was too cold started a fire i would have been fine and if Mm -hmm. i could start a fire when it's soddenly wet which is possible but was beyond my skill set and especially at the point i had that realization it was too late in my opinion to try to do something like that but it would have been a drastically different outcome i could have dried off and got that elk out you know finished up and not lost anything but again you know Hindsight's 2020, uh, right. armchair quarterbacking is easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, just make sure you know what you're getting into with these hunts. Um, these animals are just massive, beautiful creatures and know that you need to be in pretty darn good physical shape to do it. And if you think you're in good enough shape, you're 
well, maybe you are, but I definitely wasn't. So <laughs> I'm definitely taking that more serious going into uh, my next fall uh, round of elk hunts for sure. Well, there you have it, guys. Don't forget, you can leave us a message and enter to win that custom knife this month in April of 2022. If you want to contact us via email, just send that message to podcast at exomountaingear.com. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow buttons so that you receive future episodes automatically. And if you're enjoying the show, it would help us tremendously if you could leave a rating or review in the podcast platform that you're using, or just share the show with a friend. Appreciate all the support, guys, and we'll talk to you soon.